0: Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. Good evening everyone. Welcome to our fabulous uh, celebration of a portrait. Uh, We have a session tonight on portraits in place and we are celebrating in particular the portrait, the unveiling of the portrait of Professor Margaret Harris. Um, May I ask Mariko Smith to come up first, she's here and she will talk to us and acknowledge the country we are on today. Thank you Jennifer. Good evening. Um, Before we begin the proceedings tonight, I would like to acknowledge and pay my respects to the traditional owners of the land on which we meet, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. It is upon their ancestral lands on which the University of Sydney is built. And I would also like to acknowledge and pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging, and to pay my respect to the knowledge that is forever embedded within the Aboriginal custodianship of country. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mariko. Mariko is also a student over at uh, Sydney College of the Arts, and so is having a great time over there with uh, Professor Harris, a little side uh, sideline there. So I'd also like to acknowledge that we meet on the Gadigal lands and pay my respects to elders past and present, and to thank Mariko for her warm welcome. My name is Jennifer Barrett, and I'm the director of the university's Culture Strategy, my departmental home is in art history where I do research on museums, democracy and human rights. I also do research on artist engagement with museums. That's just to give you some background about why I'm here but also um, how this this particular uh, event tonight interests me on a number of levels in terms of how it reflects uh, the changing nature of the culture of the University of Sydney but also how we are Forever engaged here in, in making our spaces, our public spaces and ceremonial spaces better reflect the university culture that exists now. Okay. So, as part of the university's uh, commitment to recognition of women in their careers, we commissioned the artist Dr. Celeste Chandler to create portraits of two eminent Sydney academic women to be hung in McLaurin Hall at the university. The first portrait of Professor Nalini Joshi and I direct you to the space over here, uh, was officially welcomed to Maclaurin Hall at our International Women's Day event on the 8th of March this year. The second portrait of Professor Emerita Margaret Harris will be officially welcomed to Maclaurin Hall at this event tonight. This event will focus on the role of portraits and the impact they have uh, upon specific places and we are interested tonight in a discussion about the relationship between history, place and people. One of the key objectives of this, I guess you could call it an initiative of of portraits, painting portraits for this ceremonial space, uh, relates to these objectives. We are keen to celebrate our talented women and our actions to accelerate gender equality within the University of Sydney staff, student and future students. We're keen to provide a forum where knowledge and points of view can be shared as to the status of women and how symbols such as portraits may assist in this process. We're keen tonight to provide a forum that explores the shifts in assumptions, mindsets and ways of thinking that are required to achieve gender equality. Our interest in portraits and place tonight coincide with the changing nature of contemporary portraiture. Portraiture has many functions. It can reinforce elite status of the wealthy and powerful. It can signify familial relationships between the subject, artists and patrons. Portraits can also be commemorative. It can be moments to be uh, be celebrated. While some portraits may reveal more about the commission or the artist than the sitter. These are some of the topics we'll explore tonight. Some of the other topics we might explore is how, how how do we accession portraits like this into the university's collection and also what is the role of portraiture in historically significant places such as this? What is the role of contemporary art in historic sites such as Maclaurin Hall? We'll also be asking our our artist, Dr Chandler, about the commissioning process and what is involved with that, what are some of the tensions or what are some of the challenges it, it might raise. So this will be followed. This discussion uh, or the, the panel presentations will be followed by a Q&A session. And then we'll have the Vice Chancellor, Dr. Michael Spence, officially accepting the portrait into the hall. But Before we hear from our first panelists, let me remind you about the significance of McLaurin Hall. The New South Wales Office of, Heritage, of Environment and Heritage uh, have a statement of significance about this this hall, and it says, and I quote, It's the first purpose-built library for the university, designed not only for its principal function, but to advance the public understanding of art history and the appreciation of fine craftsmanship. It's designed in the European Gothic tradition, but constructed in the best Australian materials and with the highest quality craftsmanship. The library proudly extolled Australian craftsmen as, e- as the equal of their forebears. The reference goes on to say that Maclaurin Hall also shows us the exemplary carvings and decorative embellishments of the building that proclaimed the symbolic form of the university's place within the tradition of British universities and the contemporary world of scholarship. Now, it's not my role tonight to critique this, this history, but perhaps our panel and the acceptance of Professor Harris's portrait uh, goes some way to address what is missing in this official state government account of significance. It reminds us, however, about the importance of stating clearly what heritage and culture we do value and what we value about our past, what we value now and what we look forward to seeing in such spaces in the future. Can I ask my panelists to join me up here on the stage, please? Dr. Chandler, Dr. Ann Stephen, and also Dr. Scott Hill, and our guest of honour, Professor Margaret Harris. Now, I'd also like to direct you to the program that you have uh, before you. It has a detailed a list of... Uh, ..a detailed biography of each of oh, the panellists, but I will, in between each presentation from, from our guests, uh, we'll, we'll actually hear a little bit more about them. OK. So, I'd like to, first of all, start off with um, Anne Stephen. Dr. Anne Stephen has three degrees in art history and has worked as a curator for over three decades across public and university museums. She was appointed senior curator at the university's art collection in 2009 and has led and has had responsibility for developing its art exhibition and public program, including a number of award-winning programs. Um, As you'll see from her biography in the program, there's a long list of accolades and also an impressive uh, research track record. Now, what I've asked Anne to, to talk about today in relation to our topic tonight is how the Celeste's portraits differ from the historic commissions surrounding her in McLaurin Hall? Dr Anne Stephen, to the podium, please.
1: Thank you, Jennifer. Um, it's a great honour to be here tonight uh, to pay respects to... Um, Two distinguished academics. When I began work at the university, a senior creator of the art collection, I became responsible for a collection of some 448 portraits in a collection of over 8,500 works. While 5.2% sounds relatively minor, portraiture remains the major public face of our collection. Uh, My job has in fact been described by friends as guardians of the, or guardian of the dead white males. (laughs) Uh, Particularly given a slender 1% of the portraits are of women. Our grand halls are filled with patriarchs of colonial wealth and wisdom. Take the three paintings that face, or that will face the two portraits by Celeste, From the right, the squatter and early member of the University Senate, James MacArthur of 1863, the larger portrait, and on his right, then-Chancellor Sir Edward Dees Thompson of 1865. These two colonial portraits were the work of a London-based Italian academic, Cavalier Capaldi. Australian artists at the time were considered not sufficiently adequate for the job. The third one on the far left, Sir William Montagu Manning, was also the work of a British academician, Sir John Watson Gordon. Significantly, they were all paid by public subscriptions, so there was in the colony at the time a great desire to commemorate the good and the great. In recent times, as Jennifer has suggested, there's been a stirring on the university walls. In the Great Hall, the 25 male figures of past chancellors and vice chancellors have been joined by two female portraits of Marie Bashir and Dame Leonie Kramer, shortly to be coupled by a third, that of our present chancellor. Significantly, two of these are the work of Shanghai-born Australian-based Wei Shen, who studied at the Beijing Academy, where the traditional skills of portrait painting continue to be taught long after they were abandoned by Australian art schools. Thus, it is quite a remarkable achievement of Celeste Chandler to represent with such insight and creativity the two, her two distinguished subjects, Nalini and Margaret. We also unveiled, as many of you would know, last month, the monumental portrait of Charles Perkins by the Indigenous artist Daniel Boyd in the Charles Perkins Centre. These new types of commissions are important symbolic acts for the university to acknowledge a history of gender and racial inequality and in that old feminist phrase to represent positive role models. However, I would venture to say the biggest question that we face today is to reconsider the role of commemoration in the 21st century. And it's not just a problem of our walls becoming increasingly crowded with the great and the good. The challenge is really a question about art. The genre of portraiture evolved in the Renaissance based upon the humanist tradition of representation. Since the invention of photography, the role of the artist in this field has been ever diminished. One sign of a last stand of the portrait genre is the Archibald, where infamously an artist was disqualified when his portrait was exposed as based upon a photographic representation. So in this era of liquid modernity, when everyone can make a selfie... What future is there for the slow and highly skilled work of portraiture? Today, it is a very rare artist that has the complex knowledge for both embodying the individual and the representative qualities that scholars or patrons require. Celeste Chandler is in this respect remarkably accomplished and largely self-taught. But as a contemporary artist, I'm sure she doesn't see herself as a latter-day court painter. Rather, I think her commission is a brilliant intervention within the halls of the academy, more like an installation that takes account of the lighting and architecture of McLaurin Hall, and I'll leave her to talk a little bit about that, as much as being a contemporary commentary on the historic genre. But we do need to find contemporary ways to commemorate the great and the good. One way might be through art commissions named in honour of significant figures, and there's a long track record of that, like the Porsche Geech Prize or the Archibald Fountain. Even simple plaques on trees and park benches can celebrate an individual. But in this instance tonight, we are most fortunate to have two fine paintings that engage with the individual, the institutional setting and the historic moment in ways that far surpass the documentary. Congratulations to both artists, and initially her somewhat ambivalent subjects who I have to say were won over by the process of working with Celeste. So congratulations, thank you. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Anne. That was a great sort of mini history, art history of portraiture. And uh, for those of you who are on campus uh, this week, you will notice that the Verge Gallery, the student gallery, are looking at the male portrait um, in a number of public programs and also artworks. So it is a hot topic. And uh, I would now like to introduce my second speaker here, Dr Scott Hill. Dr Scott Hill is portfolio curator for Rouse Hill. Uh, and also Elizabeth Farm and Marugul down the south coast, and he's working with Sydney Living Museums. So those are properties of that that um, institution. His particular interest is in colonial domestic architecture and design, and the interpretation of everyday life that is possible in house museums, ranging from the ephemeral to contemporary art interventions. So a nice link there with the work of what we just heard about from Anne, Dr Hill.
2: Well, good evening, everybody. What we see in house museums is typically a reconstruction of a particular period or of the life of a particular person or family. In an age where the selfie is paramount and we are surrounded by images of ourselves, we quite often expect to see portraits to see who these people were. Now, 19th century custom dictated that dining rooms were adorned wherever possible with ancestral portraits and at Rouse Hill, where I work for instance, we have seven alone from the 19th century. Painted portraits and later photographs aside, the explosion in production of prints in the 19th century meant that even quite modest homes could furnish their walls with pictures and especially with portraits. In the bulk of cases, and the most notable exceptions being members of the royal family, These were typically of men prominent in politics, the military, the arts, literature, and the sciences. A fashionable domestic library also featured prints and portrait busts of famous writers and historians. And in the very week when the 200th anniversary of Jane Austen's death is being commemorated, it must be remembered that when first published, her works were anonymous. Recreating these collections and decorative art schemes is academically correct, but inevitably gives rise to a very jaundiced view of the historic interior. At Elizabeth Bay House, for, uh, for example, a sizable collection of portraits based on an early inventory was recreated. Now these provide a survey of scientific thought of the period just prior to evolutionary theory, and especially of those researchers with whom Alexander McClay, the house's builder, had a relationship. Through them, Maclay's overwhelming interest in entomology and the sciences is interpreted to the visitor, especially so since the original specimen cabinets housed in the room cannot be opened, their contents being too fragile to withstand constant vibration. It is, as its then curator, Scott Carlin, openly discussed, a collection of the proverbial and very worthy dead white males. It is ironic, given given that Maclay's daughter, Frances, was highly involved in scientific documentation, especially of her father's collection, that no portrait of her has been identified. Now, while the scientific portraits are gathered in tiers on the library walls, a collection of political portraits reassembled in the dining room delineates Maclay's political life and political allegiances. An equestrian portrait of Charles I symbolically places him squarely in the loyalist Tory establishment of the colonial administration. Sometimes a portrait raises awkward questions though. Well, why was it owned? Why was it displayed? What exactly was the connection? Do we even have the right person? Identification aside, this ignores the questions of cost and availability of reacquiring the portraits themselves over other objects that could perhaps interpret other stories. At Elizabeth Farm, two portraits were listed in an 1854 inventory of the house, two years after the death of Elizabeth MacArthur. You can't help but feel that these were unwanted leftovers discarded as the rest of the original collection was already picked over and dispersed. To obtain and hang the same subjects would quite likely give them some importance more importance than was ever placed on them by the MacArthur's themselves. The interpretation of a house museum traditionally uh, relies on the physical, the surviving paraphernalia of human domestic life. When this does not survive, or is not able to be acquired for display, it means that entire, even pivotal themes and aspects of life at that site can be greatly diminished, silenced, even excised from the interpretive dialogue. If the details of, say, a servant's life are simply not known, that person's presence can be anonymously reduced to the tools of their trade. A mop, a bucket, an apron, a shovel, pots and pans. A daughter's presence is reduced to a sewing basket and women's work. The cliches of historic life too easily take centre stage. And this brings me to the idea of of uh, introducing contemporary art to the historic house, because an artist's intervention can be one highly effective way of enabling these aspects to be brought to the foreground. And here I use the word intervention quite deliberately. The once vast library owned by the MacLays at Elizabeth Bay House, now interpreted by a comparatively modest collection of books, was powerfully evoked by Jane Dyer's 2007 installation of towers of books crammed into doorways, threatening to explode over the viewer in an avalanche of text. For me, as I passed by it each day, my immediate response to Dyer's work was to recall the saying, when a person dies, a library burns, and to imagine all of those libraries lost with the passing of each generation of the house's inhabitants. Jonathan Jones's Gurrigan, where a lattice of fluorescent lighting underlay the furnishings of an entire bedroom, was an especially powerful reminder of the indigenous story of Elizabeth Bay and Sydney's Port Jackson, inspired by a colonist who wrote of the small fires carried in fishing canoes as they traversed the water. Similarly, in 2007, Sue Pedley replaced the mattresses of the house's principal bed with a midden of oyster shells, again evoking the countless generations of Gadigal people who had lived on the site and the shell middens they produced. Middens burnt by colonial builders in kilns to produce lime, for building the very house in which the artwork was created. Part of the same group show as uh, Jones's Gurrogen, in 2006's Tendency, Claire Healy and Sean Cordero with Simon Fuchs and Martin Bloom portrayed domestic women's work gone mad in Doilies of Terror, where like the red weed in The War of the Worlds, red crocheted doilies spread out uncontrolled across tables, across floors and under every ornament and piece of furniture. Increasingly, and this is really quite importantly, audiences and indeed House Museum curators are now quite comfortable with the artistic intervention, and especially the realisation that the works that are created are site-specific, works that draw on the stories of that place to expand our understanding of it. It also needs to be acknowledged that the incorporation of contemporary artist works into the House Museum Enables the museum to reach new audiences and to re engage with those who, having been once, see no need to come back and experience what they may perceive as a long standing and static display. Contemporary art, from photographers whose work is hung amongst a historic arrangement, uh, I particularly note the work of Robin Stacey in, uh, in this connection, uh, through to guerrilla knitters installing knitted pies on a dining table and crocheted flames in a fireplace energizes a space. I would also argue quite strongly that introducing contemporary art, even by the simple act of contrast, does not detract from as much as heighten our awareness and appreciation of the historic. It provides new ways of interpreting and reacting, not bound by the demand for accuracy in portraying a physical historical interior. Perhaps then we can expect to be asked, not so much as is this how they lived to, is this how they felt? Thank you.
0: Thank you, Scott. Um, and the doilies of terror, I could see some guerrilla knitting uh, coming on here. Maybe we can talk about that as another part of uh, our culture strategy program. <laughs> oh, the Vice Chancellor's here. So. Hmm. OK, all right. OK, I will now move on to our. Uh, our artist, uh, Dr Celeste Chandler, who is a Melbourne-based Tasmanian-born painter. And Dr Chandler completed a master's degree in fine art at the University of Tasmania in 2003 and a PhD at the Victorian College of the Arts in 2014. She's also held solo exhibitions in Melbourne, Sydney and Brisbane and has been included and uh, curated in exhibitions throughout Australia. As you'll see from the program, she has a long list of, there are a long list of institutions that are also collecting her work. And I did ask Celeste um, to talk about a particular issue tonight, um, and that is uh, about a brush for hire, which is one of the, uh, I think, one of the challenges for artists who are being uh, presented with opportunities for commissions. So Celeste, Dr Chandler, to the
3: podium please. Thank you, Jennifer. Um, And I'd like to take the opportunity to say thank you for the opportunities to speak tonight because it's quite nice to be able to speak now that the paintings are done. Um, As speaking as an artist that is a product of a university, long university education, I have a big problem with painting portraits, actually. (laughs) And it's a complicated thing about working I guess, in a traditional medium and being in love with a tradition and a language of art, but wanting to be part of the contemporary world. And also being a product of an art school education in the 1990s where doing what I wanted to do was about the most useless and pointless activity you could imagine in an art school setting. And I certainly had an education that didn't emphasise learning skill or technique. It was um, heavily ensconced in post-structuralist theory. Um, It certainly wasn't disparaging of what I wanted to do, but it was fairly disparaging of institutions such as the Archibald Prize. So from the point of view of making um, paintings, it's problematic. It's been a problematic space for painters, so much so that when I went back to do a PhD, it was mostly to try and work out this problem of what can figurative painting, what can painting the human body actually contribute to the conversation of contemporary art. Uh, And one of the things that I came up against was the difficulties of portraiture and how dominant the reading of paintings as portraits is. I think particularly in Australia, because we have this very public institution of the Archibald Prize, which is probably one of the few most um, broadly accessed kinds of painting in Australia. By the broader general public, uh, and the perception I think that um, good painting is about likeness, and good painting is about the service of representing somebody. And uh, the history of portraiture is very much that the meaning in a portrait it does not lie in the painting; it lies in the sitter's interaction with the social world. So, um, what is important in a point in a painting? of a portrait is actually how that person is situated socially. Um, what interested me was how can painting communicate and, and function as part of a conversation outside of that convention. So I generally don't do portrait commissions. <laughs> I, I love the history of portrait painting and I'm fascinated by it. Um, so I wanted to talk about why I couldn't resist this one. and. Um, what the process was. So I was um, approached about this with the premise that this was a collection of portraits that were mostly dead white men and that there was a lack of acknowledgement of women and the achievements of women in the university. Um, This is something that has also been very prevalent to me in the last year or so of my practice since the release of the Countess Report. Um, And if you haven't heard of the Countess Report, I strongly suggest you to Google it. Um, it's to do with the statistical disadvantage of women artists in contemporary Australian public life um, where we are 75% of the graduates from art schools but are very poorly represented when it comes to the upper echelons of um, institutions, commercial exhibitions, publications, journalism, etc. So this is really present to me because I suddenly thought, shit, what the fuck am I doing? I'm making paintings which very much in the um, in the footsteps of the history of heroic male artists so a lot of women artists have taken other paths they've made performance work they've made installation work they've avoided the genres of art and the mediums of art that are very ensconced in that hierarchy and I haven't <laughs> and I love painting and I love that history which is predominantly of a male um, white male voice so how do you How do you navigate that? So um, that was interesting. So there was a political imperative for me in wanting to do this. There was also the interest in spending time with um, two women that I didn't know but that had clearly navigated the path of um, being an academic and and actually, interestingly, both being mothers, another thing I was struggling to deal with. And I also said to them, well, I want to do it from life, thinking that they'd go, oh, that might be a bit of a problem, you're in Melbourne. And they went, yes, that's fine. We'll find you a space to work, which was amazing. And so I was able to come up and work in a studio space from life. And that was really important to me because I didn't want these paintings to be um, a kind of snapshot, superficial, um, impenetrable, um, external view of somebody. I really wanted to try and capture... uh, Nalini and Margaret in real time and in an interaction so that the portrait was about that space between us and recording that space and that time spent together. Um, very thankful to Margaret and to Nalini for their generosity of time because it did take a lot longer than I originally thought, it involved a lot more sittings. I think um, Margaret probably similar to Nalini, something between 30 and 40 hours of sitting so a long time, a big commitment on their part. Um, So the other thing that was important to me was that there was um, authenticity for them as women, and it also made me aware that as a woman in academic life, the way that you present yourself is a much more finely navigated path than it is for a man, I would venture to say. I think there's certain archetypes of how men can represent themselves as successful, as intelligent, as powerful, that don't tread the same dangerous paths that women find between success and power and um, being too stern or being too feminine or being too pretty or not being pretty enough or being, you know, that all of these kind of things that we deal with in our image. So that was very interesting as a process. Um, in terms of actually making the paintings, uh, it was really a lot of hours spent talking and trying not to talk so I could concentrate because the painting got worse when I talked too much. Um, And I'm really very grateful for that time. I feel like I came away much richer for it. Uh, And I think in retrospect, I still have problems with making portraits, but for me, this was something I wanted to do irrespective of that. And I also perversely wanted to put myself in a situation... Having gone through the whole process of doing a PhD, which was actually titled "The Embarrassment of Sincerity," the problems of painting, oh, the, the changing state of figurative painting, um, so yeah, it was it was a very rich process, and I think probably a one-off for me. I really enjoyed it very much. But um, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
0: I think you 've just heard about uh, site specificity and its importance for artists as well uh, no 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 uh, we 've as you can probably tell we 've had a series of conversations in leading up to to this uh, event today and I think a lot of the conversations have been as rich as the presentations we've heard so far but uh, Celeste did talk to me about the importance of um, taking the light into consideration with both of the portraits too, thinking about where they will sit in this space in relation to the other images at the end um, and the history that that they represent so some really interesting uh, discussions for us to continue with here at this institution. Thank you. I'll now uh, introduce Professor Emerita Margaret Harris. Margaret Harris is Chalice Professor of English Literature and Acting Director of Sydney College of the Arts, University of Sydney. Professor Harris has served as a fellow of the University Senate and Deputy Chair of the Academic Board and held a number of other positions within the university, such as the Director of the Research Institute for the Humanities and Social Sciences and Director of Research Development, Humanities and Arts. In addition, she has undertaken numerous roles on committees of the Australian Research Council, including the Excellence in Research for Australia Evaluation, and participated on panels for research evaluation internationally in Hong Kong and New Zealand. Her scholarly expertise is in 19th and 20th century English and Australian fiction, especially the work of George Eliot and George Meredith. Now, there's a long list of publications, not only in uh, the program for this evening, but you'll also find them on her website. Um, It's important to also acknowledge that Margaret has held a number of uh, prestigious uh, fellowships at institutions, both here and internationally. And her work in community outreach includes chairing the New South Wales Premier's Literary Awards and the Kibble Awards for Australian Women's Life Writing. Um, I didn't put a question to Professor Harris for this section and we thought that there would be sufficient inspiration from members of the panel for her to respond, but I know that she's been preparing some fine words of wisdom for you this evening. Professor Harris, thank you.
4: Vice-Chancellor, colleagues, friends, relations, ladies and gentlemen. I too wish to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which we meet and it's particularly gratifying that Mariko uh, was able to perform the welcome earlier. Um, I'll begin pedantically by correcting Jennifer um, She's a Wingama- Wingara Mura Fellow and, and a staff member. And so, as a colleague uh, in my current role at SCA, that's why it's particularly gratifying that uh, Mariko uh, performed the Welcome to Country. I'm deeply conscious of the, the signal honour that this portrait bestows on me. And I thank you all for coming tonight as the portrait is welcomed into Maclaurin Hall. Um, not hung and not unveiled, the choice of words is something that's quite particular. Earlier speakers have touched on the experience of being painted and it was uh, curious and disorienting, interesting and engaging, I hasten to say, uh, Celeste, But since place is a theme of tonight's discussion, I'll say that there was an appropriateness to the sittings happening in a seminar room in the Woolley Building where I've often taught. As for this space in which we meet and where the portrait will hang up up there, in my undergraduate days, this was the Fisher Library. Lines of desks, going crossways this way, an area photocopier to be seen, let alone a computer. The card catalogue was back there in what was then a, a sort of alcove. And it was in that area at a small desk under the nose of a librarian that in my third year I sat to read D.H. Lawrence's Lady Chatterley's Lover. (laughs) Then a banned book, which the lecturer had sought permission to import for educational purposes, literary (laughs) purposes, of course. Well, censorship of literary texts, I'm glad to say, is no longer what it was in the 1990s. And into the bargain, and I don't offer an opinion on this, into the bargain, uh, Lawrence isn't much studied, and I think perhaps not so much read now. The Woolley Building, uh, to which I alluded, and where the, the paint was laid on the canvas, was named for the university's first professor of classics, so other forms of of commemoration than the the visual one that brings us uh, particularly here tonight. But the Woolley Building started life as the Peter Nicol Russell Engineering Building, but was repurposed 40 odd years ago. Um, I'll permit myself to say a hand-me-down from Engineering to Humanities. However, when the first group of English department people moved into the building in 1973, and I was one of them, it took me some time to find out that there was a women's toilet in the building. It was behind a door marked private. (laughs) Clearly, the uh, secretaries, who were probably the only women uh, at all involved with the uh, engineering faculty at the time, needed uh, not to be... Uh, to be entering a convenience that was gender-specific. Now, and this is another thing where we've moved on, there are unisex loos in the home building and in the new Fisher Library. My point is that things do change around here. Customs and cultures shift, buildings are repurposed and... There's a renovation coming up, as some of you very well know, uh, of the old Teachers College to become to house Sydney College of the Arts when it moves from Roselle. Uh, old Teachers College is a building opened in the 1920s It has two handsome internal courtyards, originally one for women and one for men, uh, a segregation not to be... Uh, segregation long abandoned and not to be re- reinstated, and that's a, a, a refurbishment that's coming up. Uh, so it was that fifty odd years ago, the former Fisher Library was repurposed, refurbished as the McLaurin Hall to become one of the university's principal function rooms, and used in that uh, in that way tonight. Um, It has to be said, though, that the university doesn't always get things right. Not always, Michael. Um, And a case in point is uh, the demolition of the benefactor of of Fisher Library, Thomas Fisher, the demolition of his house in Darlington in the 1960s. It stood roughly where the aquatic centre now is, and I think... um, Advancement would make much of that building were it uh, to survive. So, t- to return to the portrait. It's a likeness, yes. I didn't think I looked quite so stern, but... Um, <laughs> and certainly it, it's not photographic and and something that... Um, delights me is that I do feel there's some uh, sense of of presence that Celeste has captured that's more than the moment in time of a photograph would provide. It's got some emblems in it, symbolic elements, um, appropriate both for my calling and for this as a ceremonial portrait ideologically charged. I chose to be painted in academic dress, not just because it was an occasion to get the gear out, uh, but for the reason that it is my uh, achievements during my academic career that have credentialed me uh, in this context. And just as Nalini has her favourite equation behind her on the board, uh, the green board behind her, at Celeste's suggestion, I have books to hand and yes, They are, by favourite authors, George Eliot, George Meredith, Christina Stead, in that fairly wieldy pile. It's not not unwieldy, I don't think. So to the extent that I can take my distance from it, and that's that's not easy, I think it's a really good portrait. (laughs) I see myself on the canvas, but I see more. There are others who are with me. I'm very conscious that without the support of my family I never would have ended up where I have and without going into a whole genealogy here I thank my parents, my long suffering and unfailingly supportive husband and our children and grandchildren together with many of you, my teachers and students, colleagues and friends. But further, and this is uh, a literary scholar's conceit, I confess, there's a painting by William Buss of Charles Dickens. It's it's actually one of a number of similar uh, paintings in which Dickens is pictured uh, dozing or dreaming in his study, surrounded by his characters they shadowy figures, uh, emanations of his mind, we're, we're encouraged to, um, to, to think, to see. And so I, I see in this portrait, not just myself, but the many women who've attended the University of Sydney and graduated from it, most of them, of course, from humanities disciplines, a monstrous regiment, to use a phrase, Uh, that originated with the 17th century Calvinist John Knox and uh, this is the homework that Jennifer uh, mentioned um, because in in preparing tonight's remarks I learned what I'd not previously known that Knox wasn't, as I must admit I'd always assumed, railing against ranks of marching women, a monstrous regiment, but rather against female regiment that is, rule or regulation by women, which frankly endears the phrase to me even more (laughs) than does the militant interpretation. Women students now outnumber men, 58 to 42%, and of course those proportions vary by faculty. As far as academic staff are concerned, the phenomenon that uh, Celeste described in which um, there's uh, a, propo- a roughly equal proportion of women to men in the lower ranks. Um, those proportions decline in favour of men at associate professor and professor level. Now, ground has been gained uh, in, that, um, in that shift, or to, to achieve a shift in those proportions, and there are targets and strategies in place to achieve stronger representation of women in the upper reaches of the hierarchy. But there's still a way to go, with gender only one element requiring action as the university takes on more seriously issues of diversity and inclusion. I hope that it won't be long before the initiative that's represented by this pair of portraits provokes some raised eyebrows that such an initiative should have been necessary. For now, the portraits are a statement that women are here and count. And I'll repeat an observation that I've made before that a real marker of progress towards gender equality at the university will be achieved when a woman is Dean of Medicine. I'd add that the portraits can be seen also as evidence that the institution does value the visual arts in the existing museums and galleries that are being added to by the Chow Chow Wing Museum and Gallery and the fact that the university is investing in a regenerated contemporary arts art curriculum. And don't I know it. Finally, part of me, and this is the pedantic part again, winces when prospective students indicate that they're attracted by what they experience as the Hogwarts architecture of the Great Hall and quadrangle buildings. This isn't the moment, and I'll, I'll spare you, this isn't the moment for disquisition on colonial Gothic architecture in the Victorian period and related matters. When you've got an hour or two to spare, You may not be aware that a recent addition to the fabric of the Great Hall, however, is the crest of Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Witchery carved onto a previously vacant shield. But I can wear Hogwarts if the place is encouraging Hermione's.
0: Thank you, Professor Harris. Now, I'm really happy to open the floor for questions. We have mics that are just coming up uh, towards the centre of the room here. Um, And I'm sure that a number of you have been concocting questions as you've been listening to the panellists. And also, thank you. And also, I, it's quite possible that the panellists will have questions for each other. They all have lapel mics and can also be asking each other questions. And they might want to do that first as people start to think about. Uh... No, they don't. Yes, I have, a, there's a question. Would you like to come up here to the microphone? I think we thought there'd be a line-up from here all the way down to the back, so... Thank you.
1: I had a question for um, Dr Scott Hill. What artistic intervention would you propose for this setting, perhaps?
2: <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> um. <clears throat> I think... One of the the great strengths of the intervention in the historic house is actually the collaboration between curator and artist, um, and the, just the sheer energy and the results that come out of that relationship. So, um, I certainly know when, when I've worked with artists in in those houses before, the one thing I, I very carefully don't do is suggest anything. I I just act as the, the person who can supply information, who can expand on various ideas, who can point things out, but I very, very carefully don't try and point in, in, various, in, in those ways, I think that's very much the role of, of the artist w- when they're coming to these spaces. Um, but I think, yeah, as I, as I began, I think that's the, the great strength of interventions. It's that collaboration that, that now that we get between um, sort of the academic side, Um, if I can describe myself thus, and and the the artists coming in. So the people from the inside, the people from the outside, and what comes out of that collaboration.
0: The other thing that, that uh, thank you for that, Scott. The other thing that it raises for me is, or reminds me of, some interviews I did a couple of years ago with um, artists and actually with museum directors in non-art museums. And it was really interesting that a number of the artists said that it was much more liberating working with historical sites and historical collections than it was with art museums at times. And I think that too signaled a shift in in what's going on with some of our uh, historic houses and uh, historic sites. Next question, thank you.
1: Thank you. Um, I, I really welcome this initiative, but I'd just like to ask... Um, uh, Dr. Stevens said we need to find ways, contemporary ways of commemorating the great and the good. And I wonder, if we are focused on more inclusive forms of commemoration, uh, Do we? who is the great and the good? And do we always have to commemorate the great and the good? And in a sense, are these portraits of female professors simply another way of representing this other, which many of us in the university may find just as hard to kind of see ourselves in as we do in the portraits at the other end of the hall.
0: Mm. Thank you. Thank you for the question. So, Anne, would you like to respond to that and perhaps Margaret?
1: Um, I think that uh, the intervention in McLaurin Hall by these two portraits is really important and the day that we walked up here with Celeste and chose that end is was a great moment because it felt like McLaurin Hall was being reimagined in a way i mean tonight you can't see the long row behind us but um, you know they they're all there um. <laughs> I think that, uh, you know, as an intervention it's really significant, Um, but I um, am concerned that we do try and arrive at other ways as well Mm -hmm. of um, moving into the future, because when people hear about this commission, uh, I do get quite a number of phone calls from other schools saying what about a portrait of a significant person and it concerns me as to not only where we're going to place them but, um, it, you know, what is the need that this that this uh, responds to. So, you know, I, I think I, I agree with the questioner um, we do have to find other ways mm. to commemorate.
0: Mm. Well, I thought we... Yes, yeah, Celeste, and then Malcolm come to... Yep.
3: Um, sorry, I think this is probably low. Like... Can you hear me okay? The... I was... I think that's a really good question, and it was something that concerned me a lot in the process of starting the commission, and it was something I talked to actually Nalini about quite a bit in terms of whether we make paintings that are just the same painting of a woman as you would make of a man and whether that was what that was achieving. Um, and I really tried to make paintings that spoke to the woman at the back of the row in the exam of first semester of first year that at least looked around and saw that women were potentially going to get there, which maybe hasn't been the case. Uh, and to try and make paintings that felt human, and rather than um, cold and removed and superior, so that wasn't an aim to try and address that problem. Whether it achieves it or not, <laughs> I don't know. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Mm.
0: Are and I think that's it is part of a suite of uh, broader programs, um, and it has to be. I think, as uh, Professor Harris raised in, in, in her presentation, is that um, it's a pity that it's got to this in many ways that we, you know, uh, that we should have had many more opportunities to celebrate women so that in some ways there wasn't so much pressure on these two portraits uh, in, in that way. So, Professor Harris, did you want to add to that? Uh, I, I think um,
4: the kinds of comment that I'd make um, have been covered, um, and and your response that this is a great initiative, but there's still more, is mm. is very much my my yeah. attitude to most things.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. And a question here from Peter. Uh, thank you very
5: much, and thank you for your wonderful new portrait. Uh, it's going to be a great adornment to this wonderful hall. But I wondered if... uh, We've got a a title, Portrait and Places, and I wonder if we could also add one more word, which is time, which in some ways goes to the point you were just making, that these portraits are very permanent, and where do you put them all? There is one meeting room that I think a lot of us have sat in over in the Darlington Centre, where we all sit there feeling that the Archibald Prize does have a lot to answer for. (laughs) Um, And... um, A person I study, a good deal, Beethoven had a little canon that he wrote, Ars Longa Vita Brevis. Uh, The artworks stay here. The number of iconic walls we can put them on doesn't increase. So I just wondered about your thoughts about how we can um, refresh our commemorative uh, gestures like this. Uh, Are we always going to have the, the portraits of forgotten people from 1850 in this hall, or is, is there room for uh, rotation? Also, is there room for works which um, capture the transience of life as much as the permanence of it?
0: Mm. Mm. Would you like to respond to that,
1: Anne? Yeah? Uh, about a year or two ago, uh, for a special event, we did in fact bring J.W. Powers paintings mm-hmm. temporally into McLaurin Hall and hung them down here. And that was a revelation to see um, one of our great benefactors and a very interesting artist um, located here. And his work is uh, you know, early 20th century modernist cubist with a surreal edge and they looked remarkable. Um, I'm not sure that uh, that we could have left them here for. I think that might have, um, you know, raised eyebrows. But for the night, it was a wonderful thing to see, and maybe we can do those occasions more often.
0: Here, mm. here. I think it'd be wonderful mm. to see us having some agility with some of yeah. our ceremonial yeah. spaces in that yeah. way and making greater use of the collections mm. the fabulous mm. collections that we yeah. have if, if on, yes
4: yes uh, I think too that um, there are more more ways of commemoration and memorialization than by portraits mm. Mm. and my colleagues at SCA could I think run with this if um, if given the opportunity and uh, installations that are sound and light we're already familiar with they, they're perhaps momentary and not um, not no. permanent in, in the same way though they can be uh, archived and, and recorded so um, while I wouldn't want to see abandoned the, the tradition of formal portraiture that would be an inappropriate and ungracious thing for me to uh, to say tonight and I, I don't believe it anyway this is a, a fine tradition and, and uh, being well upheld by the university belatedly uh, that uh, to be exploring uh, new traditions in art practice uh, would be exciting and becoming
0: Thank you and it seems as though we'd don't have any more questions from the floor. So what I might do is ask the Vice-Chancellor to to join us here now to accept the portrait. Um, But as he's doing, as he's coming up here, I'd like you to join me in thanking our panelists for both presentations and then also their generous responses then. Thank you. I'll hand that over to you to accept the portrait, and I think we have a series of photographs that will be following your presentation.
6: Terrific. Um, Look, thank you very much, and I too would like to begin by acknowledging the fact that we meet on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. Well, I have to say, um, there were bits of the panel conversation this evening that rather irritated me, and rather irritated me because they tended to prioritise contemporary art and the non-representational over portraiture. And I'm all big on contemporary art and the non-representational. After all, my wife is an exhibiting artist and we are now married because I bought one of her pictures that made me cry and it's a picture of a red square, a picture that my children call the most expensive pickup line in history. But, um, and, and, and so I'm all for it. And yet, portraiture is really quite remarkable I think one of the reasons that we are skeptical about it, well, there are two really, the first is that it's very possible to read portraits flat in the kind of way that we do pictures in hotel bedrooms. You know, they're the sort of wallpaper of a room like this and it's very easy to pass them by. I know these portraits were very comforting to me when I was a student doing exams in here because you'd look at them and you'd think, all these people are dead and happen to be male. All these people are dead. Nobody knows now whether they've got a high distinction or a credit, so what, is it, um, what does it really matter? It's possible to read them flat, and I think that makes people rather snobby about them. The other thing that I think makes people rather snobby about them is they're just so damned popular. People like them. We have whole galleries devoted to portraiture. Um, The Archibald is a constant sellout, Mm. And I think the answer to both of those things, that is our tendency to read portraits flat, and also part of the explanation of why they are so popular is that these are actually extraordinary conversations with those remarkable things which are human beings. So if you sit in the great hall, you see the chancellor who looks like he's about to grab you by the throat, or you see the chancellor who in kind of rather high camp style looks a bit like a Roman senator, or the rather languid man with the cigarette um, who looks as if he thinks the whole thing is a bit of a joke. These people talk to you and they are in a sense the dim voices of our institution. Or there's the remarkable colonial woman in my office who um, came to save the fallen in one way or another, and yet whose portrait is um, is remarkably still. These are conversations with the voice of this institution. And I think what we're doing this evening is not just adding women in, but celebrating the fact that the voice of this institution is growing richer and richer as we listen more carefully to our community in the institution and as we try to reflect more more accurately and try to reflect with greater diversity the voices of the community that this institution serves. And these are remarkable voices. Um, These portraits... Um, capture something of these people whom we love so dearly. Now, there's um, Margaret, and you'll all have your own account of her, I'm sure, but for me, the portrait speaks of Margaret's wisdom, of Margaret's insight and her humanity, things that when she was on Senate and I first arrived at the university were incredibly important to me. And Nalini's portrait speaks to me of the way in which, as a person incredibly approachable, down-to-earth and lovely, she's also a great disruptor and is able to hold those two things in tension in a way that makes her an incredibly effective figure in the institution. So I, I'm so pleased to be able to accept this portrait into the Great Hall this evening is that I think they really do mark a moment in what we're trying to do with this institution to make its voice just a little more complex just a little richer, just a bit more able to to be in conversation with the complexity, the diversity, the extraordinary variety that is contemporary Australian society. So this is a great moment. It's not just adding two women in to make up the numbers, it's celebrating who we are. So I officially declare this portrait accepted. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much, Vice Chancellor. Uh, that now con- concludes the official uh, proceedings for the evening, and we can invite you to join us for refreshments. But there are a series of photographs that are required, I believe. But as we are organising those photographs, can I invite you to just uh, to to take uh, a moment, move over to the other side of the room and uh, and enjoy some refreshments for the evening. But one last time, if we could just thank our panellists, uh, that would be great. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney underscore Ideas.